I'm glad to see everybody here. I hope you have had um, you had a nice weekend, and last week was good for you. And I hope that you thought about some of the things that we talked about last week. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. I know that a lot of the things that we're going, were, we talked about last week were really deep concepts. The whole thing about the sheep and the, um, and the babies being born, all of these things were really deep concepts. And I was behind a little bit in writing about it like I normally send out a Devar Torah. <clears throat> so I wrote about last week's Parsha and uh, it gave me a little bit more time because of all of the different things going on here. It gave me a little bit more time to think about it and write about it. And, um, so I'm going to be sending that out to everybody. And Alan and Eileen, you had talked about how that those ideas about the sheep and the markings on the sheep were a little hard to grasp and so I wrote that down where you can kind of get a, um, an idea by reading it and this week's Parsha is Vigishla and it starts in chapter 32 verse 4 and this is, of course, when Yaakov, it's after Yaakov has had his encounter with Levan, and um, the family has already left Haran, and they're all on their way back to the land of um, Canaan, where he had come from. Now, one point I want to make is, have you noticed that each one of the mothers, we know that the the fathers, after the birth of Yitzhak, the fathers are now Yitzhak and then Yaakov, and they are born into the family. So they are born, they're circumcised at eight days old, they're already into this family. But the mothers are being, are coming from this area of Padan Aram, from Haran. So essentially, what we're seeing here is that the mothers are being raised in this very idolatrous atmosphere. They're being raised in a very corrupt household. Rivka was Levan's brother. Uh, Rachel and Leah were his daughters. They're surrounded by these corrupt ideas and everything. So essentially what the mothers are, in a nutshell, is they become on their own through, through uh, very pure souls that they had in the world that they were righteous Gentiles that the mothers were all righteous women and that's a point that I want us to really grab hold of that even though there's some, there is some uh, debate about when there was actually the people became Jews and the um, Jewish people believe that the first Jew was Abraham at the Brit Mila. There's some discussion about that. I mean, I've talked about that with Adam, and he says, well, they were all B'nai Noach until the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Well, that's not really the, uh, uh, the popular opinion among the people of Israel. We mark that as being at the time of Abraham, but 
when we look at the mothers, you know, the mothers, Sarah, of course, Sarah and Abraham made this journey together. And then they both came into this covenant together. But Rivka came into it. She was raised in this house of Betul. And then Leah and Rachel came from the house of Levon. And so they were essentially righteous B'nai Noah women. And they were bringing the, the, the children, the family that would become the nation of Israel. They were the ones who were bringing this family into the world. And all of this is a process. We have to see the whole thing, all of these stories, step by step, is a process. It's not just one, two, three, and it's all done. It's step by step over generations, over years, of Hashem dealing with these people, and then their sons, and then their their sons, and bringing women into this uh, covenant. And it's a whole process of building this nation, and it, and it takes... Literally, it takes hundreds of years. So, that's an interesting thought, too. I mean, uh, we've talked about how it's uh, also, it's about the journey. Life is a journey. And when we look at these parshaot, we can see that the building of the house of Israel was a journey. And every step of the way was important. And sometimes when we'll read in the Torah, it will say, and nothing in the Torah is um, accidental. Everything, the way it is said, has a purpose. And so, when we'll read the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Yitzhak, the covenant of Yaakov, we are realizing, you know, we can realize that essentially it's, it is one covenant that is continuing, yes, but, and on another level, we could see it as three stages of that same covenant. But on another level, on a very real level, it's three different covenants. That the way that Hashem dealt with each one of the fathers was individual for that father. That he was going to do a certain thing, he was giving him a certain promise, and what was he doing? He was taking it into consideration this man's characteristics, his, his gifts in the world, what he was bringing down into the world, and also the family that he had with him. It all tied together. Abraham had Sarah, and so he had one, you know, it was a whole package. Abraham and Sarah and their household. That was one whole package. And so that part of the covenant looked a certain way. And then... Yitzhak and Rivka, I mean, their relationship, we see how Rivka had to do this deception in order to show Yitzhak he had been deceived by Asaph. And so there's that whole package there of their relationship is uh, a completely different thing from that of Abraham and Sarah. And then we look at Yaakov. And Yaakov is the first one that we see he has two uh, wives who are like equal in status. I mean, the handmaidens become wives, but we don't really hear a whole lot about them. And we actually hear um, Rachel and Leah speak. We we see their character, we see their personality, and they also make up this package in a very special way. 
They make up that part of the covenant in a very, very special way. And so this is something that we should bear in mind when we read these stories, that they're, they're more than stories. It's conveying something to us about the people and how the people themselves are archetypes of deep spiritual, um, deep spiritual concepts, of principles that we draw down and we connect with. <clears throat> so Yaakov, and it's really interesting too, how Yaakov we see in these different stories, and that's why you have to look deeper. Because when you read the story on the surface, you would say, Yaakov deceives people. He's a trickster. That's what a lot of people think of Yaakov. But it's really not true at all. And it shows how you really have to look deeply into what the Torah is saying. Because Yaakov essentially is drawing down everything that is going to be necessary for this family to become the nation of Israel. For this family to become the vessel through which Hashem can give the Torah into the world. And so when we look at this esoterically, Yaakov personifies exactly the opposite of what it looks like on the surface. He personifies truth itself. He personifies Torah. He personifies the balance. You see, on um, the one side, you see Abraham being very, very loving and kind, you know, pouring this out. And Yitzhak is more reserved. We're not going to say that he's harsh. He's not. He's not judgmental. But his experience with the Akedah, his experience of being bound and being a sacrifice and seeing the Shekhinah, you know, seeing this, showed him what we later call the fear of Yitzhak that this is one of the names of Hashem himself is called fear of Yitzhak because this became a character this was his characteristic and so there are these different things and then Yaakov comes as a balance between the two and in order for there to be a vessel for the Torah to come into the world what do you need? you need a balance between these two things you can't be too lenient and you can't be too strict. You have to have a balance between those two things in order for truth to come into the world. You have to have boundaries, but you also have to have the loving kindness with those boundaries. And this is Yaakov. And Yaakov is somebody who merits what we're going to read here in a minute. He merits this. He has the strength of character and we see he has a lot of physical strength too and we kind of miss that when we read about Yaakov and Esau and Yaakov is this man who dwells in the tent and you kind of think of him as kind of wimpy until you see him moving this stone off the well that all these guys couldn't had to be together to move but Yaakov by himself moves it so you see there that there's more to Yaakov than you first think in the first you know when you read the first parsha there's, a, there's more there. So now we're going to see a little bit more about Yaakov, and he's up in years now. But this is very essential in that creating the vessel through which the Torah can come into the world. Now remember, when we first started talking about Yaakov coming into the world, 
his mother was pregnant with twins and they were struggling against each other they were fighting with each other and she went and she asked of Hashem through Shem himself the son of Noah what was going on and Shem told her that she was going to give birth to two nations and these weren't just nations but these two nations would be the driving power of history two opposite forces that would drive history and so now we're going to come to where uh, the next part of this next episode where everything really comes to a climax with this Yaakov sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Asaph to the land of Seir the fields of Edom and he commanded them as follows thus shall you say to my lord Asaph thus says your servant Yaakov I have sojourned with Levan as a stranger and was held there until now I have acquired oxen and donkeys flocks and men servants and maidservants and I have gladly sent to tell this to my lord in order to find favor in your eyes and the messengers returned to Yaakov and said we came to your brother to Esau and moreover he is coming to meet you but there are 400 men with him and Yaakov was very much afraid and distressed he divided the people whom he had with him and also the flocks the cattle and the camels into two camps and he said if Esau comes to the one camp and strikes it down then the other camp will escape so here he is he sends message, a message to Esau and he gets back this message that Esau is coming but he has 400 men with him Esau has become a very powerful man in the land he's become a leader of an army and Yaakov hasn't really had he has not had any word from home he hasn't been in touch with his family so he doesn't know what's going on he does not know what Aesop's thoughts are toward him and he has every reason to believe that Aesop is still just as angry as he was before and so Yaakov decides on a strategy what is he going to do and this is on a human level here Yaakov is a very you know he's a thinker he's a wise person he's had to deal with some really crafty people um, like Levan and so he decides that he's going to divide the camp so that they can uh, at least one camp will escape thereupon Yaakov said O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Yitzhak God who says to me return to your country and to your birthplace and I will do good to you he's reminding Hashem here that he he told him to go back to his homeland and he was obeying his word to him this is a very interesting prayer here he's asked, he's uh, praying he goes on I have become too small from all the kindnesses and all the faithfulness which thou hast rendered to thy servant for with my staff did I pass over this Yarden, and now I have become two camps deliver me I pray thee from the hand of my brother from the hand of Asaph for I fear him lest he should come and strike me down the mother along with the children and thou hast said it 
I will surely do good to you, so that I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted for the multitude. So he's reminding Hashem of the promises that he gave to him. But you notice something here. That even though he is praying, and even though he has faith, he does, he has faith in those promises, he's still making plans for a possible conflict with Asaph. He's not just sitting back and saying, oh, everything will be okay. And we have a good lesson here from Yaakov. That even though we'll believe in the words of Hashem, and we should, we should also be practical. And this is what we're learning here. Asaph is a man of balance. He is a man who lives both in this world very successfully, and he's also a man who is very spiritual. He draws those two things down together. He relies on Hashem. Thoroughly he relies on Hashem. And that does define his life in this world. But he does live in this world. A lot of times people think they have to do one or the other. And Yaakov is the balance. He's the harmony. And this is one of the ways we see that balance. He stayed there that night and took of that which he had in his hands a gift for his brother Asaph, two hundred she-goats and twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty nursing camels with their young, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty she-donkeys and ten foals. And he delivered him to his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Pass over before me and put a space between herd and herd. And he commanded the first one as follows, If my brother Asaph should meet you, and should ask you as follows, Whose are you, and where are you going, and whose are those before you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Yaakov. It is a present sent to my lord, to Asaph. And behold, he himself is behind us. So he commanded also the second, and the third, and all those who followed the herds. In this manner shall you speak to Asaph, when you meet him say each time lo your servant Yaakov is behind us for he thought I will first appease his anger with the gift that goes before me and then I will see his countenance perhaps he will raise my countenance so the gift passed on before him but he himself remained awake all night in the camp so what does he do he makes these plans that he's going to first well first what is the first thing that he did the first thing he did was he prayed he divided the camp but he prayed and then the second thing he did was he sent a gift to appease Asaph he didn't want to go to war with Asaph so he sent a gift ahead and he thought okay I'm going to divide it into three groups and each one you know, maybe his anger will, will grow again, but then will come the second group. So he's planning his strategy here. And so he first, he prays, then he tries to um, send a gift ahead to appease his anger so that he can make peace with him, hopefully. But he also prepares for war. Now, we don't see that right away. We'll see that in a minute. But the next thing that happens is what happens at night now he has prayed 
and he's getting ready to face Asaph and he is preparing for a war now I think that maybe you have heard me talk about the fact that before there is a war on in this world before something happens here that it is first fought in the heavenly realms in the court of heaven it's not swords and bat, you know like that it's not like that uh, battle in the court in heaven is a court battle now you don't quite get that with the next the next uh, passages but it's very important that we understand that now in the next passage we're going to see something um, it's really interesting how this whole thing developed and first I'm going to read it and then we're going to talk about it <clears throat> and he got up during the night took his two wives his two maidservants and his eleven children and passed over the ford of the Yabuk that is he took them and led them across the stream and brought across that which he had and Yaakov was left alone and someone wrestled with him until the break of day he saw that he could not prevail against him so he touched the upper joint of his thigh and the upper joint of Yaakov's thigh was dislocated as he wrestled with him and he said let me go for day is breaking but Yaakov said I will not let you go until you bless me and he said what is your name and he said Yaakov and he said your name shall no longer be Yaakov but Israel for you have become the commanding power before God and men since you have prevailed thereupon Yaakov asked and said please tell me your name but he said why is it that you ask after my name and he blessed him there Yaakov named the place Peniel for I have seen the divine face to face and my character has remained intact the sun rose for him and he passed over Penuel and he limped upon his thigh therefore Israel's sons must not eat the sinew of weakness which is the upper joint of the thigh to this day because he touched the sinew of weakness at the upper joint of his thigh now when we look at this passage I know that there is a lot of assumption about who it is that Yaakov is wrestling with through the night. A lot of times we thought, well, it's an angel, you know, and um, there are a lot of, and it's true. It doesn't say an angel, though. It says, what does it say exactly? It says someone someone wrestled with him until the break of day now do you have an idea of who this someone could have been anyone okay uh, this is a very it's um it's debated whether this was an actual wrestling match physical wrestling match or if it was a dream now my opinion is it was an actual physical wrestling match 
And the person that he was wrestling against was not a human being. It was an angel. And this makes us, and this, I want us to understand this. This is a good place for us to get an understanding about some of the concepts that we may have had in our previous lives. And I mean that before our, you know, coming to certain understandings. This angel was the angel of Asaph. Each nation has a an angel that sits in the court of heaven. And those nation those angels have a responsibility. They have a they were created to represent their nation that they are attached to. And this angel was the angel of Asaph. Now just like before Asaph and Jacob were born, they were wrestling, they were struggling against each other. Now Yaakov is meeting the angel of Asaph, where everything is going to be determined. He's struggling with him. A physical battle, he's struggling with him. And it's another one it's another stage of we can look at it symbolically, but it's another stage of history being determined. And this is the Parsha where we really see that the struggle against Yaakov and Esau against uh, Israel against um, Edom and that sets the course of history it sets the course of all of history so first it's just like when we look in the book of Daniel and and um, the angel says to Daniel that he had been fighting against the angel of of um, Babylon of no of Persia and then next he had to fight against the angel of Greece and we think of it a wrestling match but it was really a court battle here is an actual, here it is depicted as a wrestling match where they were really struggling against each other in a similar way that Yaakov and Esau may have been struggling against each other and maybe boxing at each other before they were even born because they were representing two ideals coming into the world. They were representing two ways of living your life. Aesop is going to be a very lustful person who embraces life, who wants to get all the gusto, as it were, out of this world. And he wants all these material things. This is success to Aesop. And Yaakov looks up. I mean, he does have things. He has material items. But his eyes are focused upward. He's representing those things that are eternal. Not just temporal, but eternal. And so he wrestles with this angel of Esau. And the angel of Esau is like, if he can win this, he can put Yaakov down. He can put Yaakov down and all of history is going to be different. And so Yaakov is wrestling with him not just for his own life, but for the future of his nation, of the nation, the future of the whole world is hinging on this wrestling match. I mean, think about it. How phenomenal that is. Now, 
a lot of times when we think about these angels that represent the opposite like that like the angel of Edom we would think oh it's like we always think of, of the Satan and he's the bad guy but I want us to understand something here the angels whether they are um, on the right or the left of the throne of Hashem are still representing they are still created to represent those nations and they are still doing the will of Hashem there has to be this force in the world there had to be these two forces in the world they came into the world there is nothing that is created in the world that is not created by Hashem it doesn't happen he is the creator of everything and so there is no enemy that you know that could you know God forbid overthrow Hashem it just is not possible and so when we think about these you know the struggles with the evil and so on and so forth we have to change our thinking a bit it just isn't going to happen there's no way that evil can triumph there is no way and sometimes we can we can uh, even give way to that kind of thinking it just isn't going to happen because Hashem created everything and he has planned for the world and so this now of course it can look like evil could triumph and that's why Yaakov was struggling against this being with all of his might and it was a tough fight so then at the end the sun is coming up and this being is saying let me go and Yaakov is holding on to him with all of his might and he says let me go the sun is coming up so what do we think of with that with our modern way of thinking we would think oh my goodness it's like a vampire or something but no that is not right the sages tell us that all the angels in heaven have certain times when they can praise Hashem this is what makes a difference between human beings and the angels human beings can praise Hashem anytime but the angels can only praise Hashem at certain allotted times so this angel is saying let me go and why? because it was his time to praise Hashem it was his time to sing Shira to Hashem so there right there gives us another change in our way of thinking hey wait a minute this is supposed to be a bad guy right? but yet he has to go because it's his time to praise Hashem so this kind of gives us a shift in our thinking in our way of looking at things that they're not quite black and white the way we've always thought of them you know I mean think about that for a minute it really shakes up our our uh, old ideas of how things are so he says let me go because I have to go and praise God I mean it's not in the written text it's in the Midrash they had to go because he had to praise God and this is the angel of Edom so even the enemies that we would call quote enemies all have their time 
when they praise Hashem. All beings, all beings, have to give praise to Hashem because He is the creator of all beings. And so here, when in the 31st verse, Yaakov says, For I have seen the divine face to face. Now, don't make a mistake there and think that he was struggling with God. God forbid. He was not. This is just a way of saying that it was a supernatural being. It was an angel. It wasn't a man. He understood that at this point. It wasn't a man he was struggling with at all. It was an angel. And so he struggled with him. And he prevailed. But he was taught a lesson. Because the angel then touches his thigh. And even though he wins the battle, he limps home. He limps home. And so the, the message in that is, yes, you have the capability. Yes, you're able to do this. You're strong enough to do this. But you're supposed to approach life in a, new, in a different way in a more gentle way and so he limps home he limps out of there even though he is the victor and he's given a new name by this angel and essentially what that angel is being forced to do is to acknowledge that Yaakov was the rightful heir was the rightful one to receive the blessing and the covenant on behalf of Esau himself the angel himself had to let go and had to acknowledge and so Yaakov was coming back into the land coming back to where his, his family is going to inherit Eretz Israel the, the land here and the angel of Esau has to say it's rightfully yours. That's essentially what he's telling him when he lets go. Does anyone have a question so far? Okay. In the 33rd uh, chapter, Yaakov lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, Esau was coming, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. So his gift has gone forward, and Esau is still coming. He still has the 400 men with him. Yaakov has even wrestled with Esau's angel. Well, Ellen and Eileen, yeah, you would think that. You always think that angels are more powerful. But I think that what this is showing us is that the angel, is, the angel himself even only had as much power as he was allowed to have by Hashem. Because the angels are only messengers of Hashem's will. They are not going to be... Um, he was not allowed to destroy Yaakov because it was not Hashem's will.
Well, it depends. It depends on what their purpose is, what their job is. Each angel is, is created with a specific purpose. And this angel was supposed to wrestle with Yaakov, but he wasn't supposed to win. And so, it, But he was supposed to give him a real fight. And he did. He absolutely did. And um, but as we as we can see, you know this was Esau's angel, and the and the end had to be that the angel himself. You know we'll see this later when we see the um, the drowning of the armies of Paro in the sea, and the Midrash talks about the angel of Egypt of Mitzrayim shrieking because. The armies are being drowned. And he pleads with Hashem that he's not going to be thrown down. So there's this um, whole drama. And with Midrash, we have to just kind of, you know, maybe not take it literally, but we're given ideas, we're given ideas of something spiritual um, principles going on here. So Esau is coming with his 400 men, and he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He placed the maidservants and their children foremost, Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Yosef hindmost. But he himself went ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came close to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell upon his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, I want us to just look at this verse for a moment. Now, sometimes, and, and there are different midrashim, and sometimes in the midrash, or with the different opinions, people want to put their own agendas in there, and Asab is the bad guy, and he's always going to be the bad guy. and so. But that's not really realistic when we look at humanity. And Asab is also a grandson of Abraham. Esau is also the son of Yitzhak. He was raised in this house, and until he was 15 years old, he was—he also had to have some influence of of Abraham. So I would like to just look at this in the Peshat, in the simple meaning of the text, and say there was something, there was a spark of brotherly love here in Esau. That there, he wasn't just. Uh, a flat, mean, cruel um, character. You have to give some dimension to the characters of the Torah, as you just like when you read a book, you want to um, understand more depth to a character. Otherwise, it's not realistic. And if we're going to take the Torah as truth, which we do, absolutely, then we have to understand that these people were real human beings. And Esau, being raised in the home of Avraham, uh, in the home of Yitzhak of Rivka, and influenced by his grandfather, Avraham, is showing here that there is something here, that there is a little bit of softness here, that he, that he is a little bit sorry, maybe, for the rift between him and his brother. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. And he said, Who are these with you? And he said, They are the children with whom God 
has favored your servant. And the maidservants approached, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah and her children also approached, and they bowed down. After that, Yosef and Rachel approached, and they bowed down. Now let's back up to the verse 6. And notice an order here. The maidservants approached with their children. Leah and her children. And then we read Yosef and Rachel. So from here we're told that Yosef stood in front of Rachel. He was protecting her even though he was the youngest son. He was protecting his mother from Asaph. He didn't want him to even look at her. He stood in front. And he said, What is to you the purpose of all this camp which I have met? He said, To find favor in the eyes of my Lord. And Asaph said, I have plenty, brother. Let that which you have remain yours. Thereupon Jacob said, Please, no, if indeed I have found favor in your eyes, then take my tribute from my hand, for therefore do I request it. I have looked upon your face as to a judge, and you have accepted me with kindness. Please take my blessing, which was brought to you, because God has favored me with it, and then I have everything. He pressed him, and he took it. So, he wanted Aesop to take this gift. He, he meant for Aesop to take this gift. And Aesop, you know, he did. He had plenty. Both of them are now men of substance. Neither one of them really has any reason to be jealous of the possessions of the other one because they both have equal. Yaakov left with nothing. And he says this in his prayers. He left, he went over the river with only the staff in his hand. He had nothing. And he comes back a very, very wealthy man with all of these flocks and with, um, and with his wives and children. He has the beginnings of the tribes, what will become the tribes of Israel. And Esau is also. He also has family. He has um his flocks and he is the head of an army he came here with 400 men thereupon he replied my lord knows that the children are oh let me uh, back up and he said let us now depart and go and I will keep pace with you Esau is saying let us go and here's something else that we have to look into the depths of what this means Esau is saying come let's walk together let us go and walk together Thereupon he replied, Yaakov replies to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and the sheep and the cattle depend upon me for their growth. If they overdrive them one day, all the sheep will die. Let my Lord please pass on before my servant and I will continue to move at my own quiet pace in accordance with the pace of the property that goes before me and in accordance with the place, the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So, Esau is saying, let's walk together. And this is another place where um, history is being affected. 
Adam is saying, come to Israel, come, let's walk together. Because he, this way we will walk together. But Yaakov knows it's not meant to be. He can't make that compromise. He has to stand alone. And so here we have a precedent with a struggle between Yaakov and the angel of Adam and with this um, walking together or not walking together. And Yaakov says, no, you go ahead. I'm not walking with you. You go ahead and then I will follow. And so what do we have? And it's interesting when we put this together with the dream of the ladder that the angel of Edom went up and up and up and up and did not come down. And Yaakov was struck with fear. What was going to be with this exile that seemed to never end? It's the exile we're experiencing now. But Yaakov was saying, no, we cannot walk together. There were incidents, there were times in um, the history where the Romans would say, come, let us walk together. Let us make an alliance. But it was always, there was always going to be something wrong with that. There was always going to be some compromise that Israel would have to make, that Israel should not make. And so Yaakov is setting a precedent here when he's saying, you go ahead. So what happened? A dome is going to go ahead. He's going to be the first one to be successful in history. He will be up and Israel will be down. If Israel is up, Adom will be down. Rome will be down. That's the precedent being set here. The principle that we're seeing set into motion here. And Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. You know, some of his soldiers. But he said, What purpose would that serve? May I find favor in the eyes of my Lord? So Esau returned on that day on his way to Seir. And Yaakov journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house. He built booths for his property. And therefore he named the place Sukkot. Yaakov came safely to the city of Shechem, which is situated in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram. And he encamped before the city. He bought the part of the field where he pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for one hundred casitas. Then he erected an altar as a memorial and proclaimed to himself, God is the God of Israel. Now this is one of the three places that we are oh, that we see in the Torah, in the Tanakh actually, that is recorded. It was bought for money. A specific place that was bought for money. And it's interesting to note that Shechem is the northernmost point. Hebron, where Machpelah, we read about that. In Sarah, where Abraham bought Machpelah, that's the southernmost point. And then in the middle is Yerushalayim, where we read about the, the uh, purchase of the Temple Mount by, it was actually a threshing floor that King David buys and makes a straight line down the center of the land of Israel. And so here is a record of the buying of this piece of property that later is given to Yosef 
where he is buried near Shem. Now, another thing that's real interesting about that, about this, is that when Yaakov settled in this area, it was like he started participating in the marketplace, in the markets of Shem. Now, this is a little aside, and it's interesting how a lot of times we'll see this happen in the Torah readings. That when we were reading about this one year, when the Palestinians first started setting up their, um, what essentially is a state, they had decided that there was going to be a uh, stock market set up in Shem, which they called Nablus. And when they made that announcement, it's almost funny, when they made that announcement, the Parsha reading was this passage. And so, I mean, I noticed that a lot of times, that when something would happen, we're reading in the Parsha, oh, they said they're going to set up a marketplace. Here's Yaakov setting up a marketplace here in Shem as he buys this property. Does anybody have anything to ask before we go on from here? Okay, we're in the 33rd chapter. Oh, you have a question, Ellen and Eileen? Okay. Now, this is a very difficult story, the story of the rape of Dina. Um, But I want us to go through this, and we'll talk about it. Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Yaakov, went out to look about among the daughters of the land. And Shem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, took her, lay with her, and raped her. But his soul clung to Dina, the daughter of Yaakov. He loved the girl and spoke to the girl's heart. And Shem spoke to his father Hamor as follows, Take this girl as a wife for me. Yaakov had heard that he had defiled his daughter Dina, but his sons were with his property in the field. And Yaakov kept silent until they came home. And Hamor, the father of Shem, went to Yaakov to speak with him. Meanwhile, the sons of Yaakov had come home from the field as soon as they heard it. The men were filled with sorrow, and it caused them to burn fiercely with anger because he had committed a scandalous act against Israel to lie with the daughter of Yaakov. Otherwise, such a thing would not have happened. Well, you notice in this verse how it says, first, they were filled with sorrow, and then they burned with anger. Now, they were indignant because here she is, and they're thinking, I mean, you can imagine, they're thinking, if she had been a native-born girl, this couldn't have happened. But since she is um, one of the sojourners, then she's vulnerable. And it, and it made them very indignant. And Hamor spoke to them as follows. The soul of my son Shem has a liking for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. Then you may dwell with us in the land should be open before you to remain and do business there and settle there. 
But Shem said to her father and her brothers, May I find favor in your eyes. What you will say to me, I will do. Impose a very large marriage settlement and gifts upon me, and I will give it according to what you say to me, and give me the girl as a wife. And the sons of Yaakov replied to Shem and his father Hamor with cunning, and they did all the talking, for after all, this was the one who had dishonored their sister. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to a man who has a foreskin, for that is a disgrace to us. However, we will be complacent to you if you want to become like us, that every male among you be, will be circumcised. Then we will give you our daughter and take your daughters for ourselves. We will live with you and we will become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, we will take our daughter and go. See, Dina is not at home. He kidnapped her. And so you see that from here, we will take our daughter and go. Their words were found good in the eyes of Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man did not delay doing the thing because he desired Yaakov's daughter. But then he was the most respected person in all his father's house. And Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and they spoke to the people of their city as follows. These people are peaceable with us. Let them remain in the land and do business there. For lo, the land is spacious. Let it be open to them. We can take their daughters for ourselves and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will these people be complacent to us, to remain with us and to become one people, that every male among us will be circumcised, just as they are circumcised. Then their property, their gain, and all their animals will be ours. Only let us be complacent to them, so that they will remain with us. And all those who went out from the gate of the city obeyed Hamor and his son Shem, and every male was circumcised, all those who had gone out of the gate of the city. They all saw the, the gain in it. They all saw, hey, we're going to have all of their animals are going to be ours. All their property is going to be ours. So they saw a gain in this. And they were, um, so they decided, oh, well, we'll do this. It came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of, the, two of the sons of Yaakov, Shimon and Levi, brothers of Dina, took each man his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shem with the sword and they took Dina out of Shem's house and they left. The sons of Yaakov came upon the slain and plundered the city because it had defiled their sister. They took their sheep, their cattle and their donkeys which were in the city, in the field, and also all their wealth, and all their children and their wives, they took captive and plundered, and all that was in the house. And Yaakov said to Shimon and Levi, You have brought me trouble to discredit me among the, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Tezerites, and I am few in number, and they will gather together against me and strike me down, and I and my house will be destroyed. And they said, Shall he treat our sister like a harlot? Now let's just talk a, a little bit about this whole story of what happened. Because this is something that is, um, 
It's, it's a difficult story. <clears throat> First, let's look at Dina. Dina is the, the last child that Leah gave birth to. And now we know that there are 12 brothers. But it's kind of an interesting thing about Dina. She was the 13th child. And so there's this idea of a 13th tribe and how many tribes are there if we count the sons of Yosef. Ephraim and Manasseh, we count 13 tribes. So there were 13 children. And there's an idea of the tribe of Dina. And we're going to talk, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. And she was born around the same time, about the same time as Yosef. Leah was pregnant. And Rachel was pregnant at the same time. And Leah realized she was pregnant with a boy. And Rachel was pregnant with a girl. And Leah prayed. Leah prayed and drew down this change that essentially the babies changed places. And so she gave birth to Dina. And Rachel gave birth to Yosef. And she named her Dina because Hashem had judged that case. Now we see a new situation in which a judgment is necessary. Now there is an idea. First of all, what had happened? There were two types of theft that took place here. Shem took Dina and he raped her. And this is considered under Noahide law, this is considered a theft. And he kidnapped her. And this is also considered theft. Now the problem is that the people of Shem, the people of the city, I mean after they find out that hey, we can profit from this thing, you see that they're not really condemning what had happened. They're in agreement. Hey, this thing could work out for the good for all of us. And so the sons of Yaakov are angry. They're really angry over a few things. One is their sister has been defiled. She's been treated like a prostitute. She's been kidnapped. So she's been stolen from the family. This is another thing that makes them angry. And the third thing that makes them angry is that the citizens of, of the city of Shechem are acting as though there's no problem with that. They're essentially condoning the behavior of one of their leaders, even though it is contrary to those things that should be acknowledged in universal law by all people. When we look at this, and it's interesting, that what is the girl's name? It is Dina. It is Dina, which is from the word in Hebrew, Dean for judgment. There needed to be a judgment made on in this situation. And so, a judgment is going to be made. And who is it made by? Not her father. Her father is very upset by it, but he keeps this to himself. And we don't really know what he would have done. Because Shimon and Levi jump out there, and they quickly, and we see this now, Yaakov had limped away from the angel that he had wrestled with and so there is this idea of of being subdued of being peaceable 
of not taking up the, the sword and the weapons of Asaph, not using those methods of Asaph, but yet hear his sons say, but there are times when we can't. There are times when we have to. And it's interesting how this story gets a lot of, I mean, it, it really arouses a lot of feeling in us because it's so it's so um, dramatic. It's so intense. And we're tempted to say, Shimon and Levi did the wrong thing. Shimon and Levi, I mean, how they did it was definitely wrong. We're not saying that. But Yaakov, when he says this later on, when he talks about this on his deathbed, he curses not Shimon Levi, and it's a mistake for us to ever say that, although I have heard people say that. He curses their anger. He curses their anger and he divides them among Israel so that they cannot be together to do this kind of thing again. He sees the potential of these two coming together. And so he curses their anger. Now, in the case of Levi, this anger becomes a zealousness for Hashem. He brings the same, and this this shows us, that you can take something that is negative, you can take a trait that is a problem in your character, and you can raise this up, because it is part of you, and you can raise this up, and you can actually rectify it in such a way that it becomes an attribute. That the anger, that the jealousy in Levi was raised up, it was raised up and given to Hashem, in such a way that it was transformed into a zealousness. A zealousness for what is right. Shimon was a different story. Um, he never quite got it. He never quite did that whole rectification of his anger. Of his problems with jealousy. Never quite did that. However, we can't totally con- condemn Shimon either. In fact, the banner of Shimon is the gates of Shechem, which indicates that when it, we come to the end of the day, the, the verdict on this whole thing is that it was a positive thing. And what happens? They take their sister out of the city. Their sister had been defiled. And who takes her into his tent? Who takes her into his home, and not in a in a profane way, God forbid, but to take care of her and to shield her? It is Shimon. Shimon is the one who cares deeply about her well-being and what's going to happen to her from here on. And when we look at this story, we also can think about in in Eretz Israel we have a problem of these women, of Jewish women, who end up marrying Arab men. They are very enthralled with them and in love with them. And then they marry them. And then after the glow wears off, they find themselves in this situation. It's a modern day example of what happened to Zena. Where they just feel like, I can't go home. I'm not worthy. And Dina was feeling this way. I can't go home. 
not after this has happened I'm disgraced and Shimon brings her home so there's this tenderness in him that he cares for his sister in a very pure way he cares for morality and he cares for his sister in such a way that he makes the way for her to come home however after this rape there was a child now this is in Midrash and the child was sent away the brothers Yosef was not the first one that they sent away the child of Dina was the first one that they sent away and there was a plaque put around her neck saying this is a daughter of the house of Yaakov interesting this is a daughter of the house of Yaakov and this girl according to our sages according to Midrash was none other than Asnat who was adopted into the house of Potiphar so the daughter of Potiphar that married Yosef was the daughter of Dina and she married Yosef and so the 13th tribe Yosef had two tribes and one of those tribes was for Dina from the daughter of Dina so there is a there is a when we look at this whole story through the Midrash it just adds to the um, you, you see different facets of it do you have any questions about this before we go on okay we're almost finished and after this whole incident that happened with Dina of course Yaakov is not going to stay in Shechem and he wasn't meant to stay in Shechem um, and we notice that it's really interesting how over and over we will read about incidents that are problematic that happen in the area of Shechem and Dina was raped in the area of Shechem and then later um, Yosef is in the same vicinity when he is sold and we're going to see that in the next Parsha so now we're on the 35th chapter and God said to Yaakov arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and erect there an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Asav so he's telling him to go back to the place that he dreamed of the ladder and this place is none other than the temple mount thereupon Yaakov said to his household and to all those who were with him put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your clothes we will arise and go to Bethel there I will erect an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me on the way when I went they gave to Yaakov all the foreign gods that were in their hands the rings that were in their ears and Yaakov buried them beneath an oak tree which is in Shechem now this is very interesting now this is um, in Hebrew it says Ha'ala it's not alone which is oak tree it's Ela and sometimes it is translated terebinth and 
this is another thing that the rabbis bring as as a reason why there was so much problem connected with this area in Eretz Israel that this was the place that all of these uh, foreign gods, these idols, were buried. And these idols, the, the gods that Rachel had stolen from her father or are some of these and they were buried under this tree near Shem and we shouldn't lose the significance of that that this was another thing that's going to be negative about this place there are certain places in Israel where it just over and over negative things happen and Shem is one of these places that really needs a, a tikkun, a rectification. Then they journeyed on, and a terror of God was upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue Yaakov's sons. On the surface, we could say they heard that two men defeated a whole city. That, that's a surface explanation of that. But it was Hashem himself who was protecting the family by putting this terror on the inhabitants. So Yaakov did not have to worry about his family being wiped out. Yaakov came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan. This is Betel. He and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place Betel. For there the realities of divine relationships had been revealed to him when he fled before his brother and that is saying that this is where he had, he had received the prophecies of what was going to happen in the future. The, the vision of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending that told him about the exiles that were coming. He saw into the future. He saw the story. What was going to happen to his family, the nation of Israel. De, uh, Devorah, Rivka's nurse, died and was buried beneath, buried below Betel, beneath the oak tree. He named it the Oak of Weeping. And here where it talks about Rivka's nurse dying, we understand that what we're being told is Rivka herself had died. And the reason that it was not drawn, it was not actually recorded in the Torah about Rivka dying, is because Rivka was also the mother of Esau, and so she was always afraid that people were going to say, that woman that brought Esau into the world. So it's not recorded that she died. But she herself, now the, the nurse was buried beneath the oak tree near Betel. Rivka herself was buried in Machpelah with Yitzhak. You have, um, actually, there's the cave that is underneath but there is on top there is what is now unfortunately a mosque and the um, there are these various rooms that are called the room of Avraham and Sarah the room of uh, Yaakov and um, Leah and the room of Yitzhak and Rivka and so Rivka was buried with Yitzhak in Machpelah but like I said, it is not recorded in, in the Torah where she died, when she died, because of her being the mother of Esau. God appeared to Yaakov again when he came from Padan Aram and he blessed him. 
God said to him, Your name is Yaakov. Your name shall no longer and shall no more be called Yaakov, but Israel shall be your name. And he named him Israel. God said to him, I am God, the all-sufficing. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a community of nations shall come into existence from you. Kings shall come forth from your loins, and the land which I gave to Abraham in Yitzhak, to you I will give it, and to your seed after you will I give the land. And God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. And Yaakov erected a memorial at the place where he had spoken with him, a memorial consisting of one single rock, and poured a libation upon it, and then poured oil upon it. Yaakov named the place where, ya- where God had spoken to him, Bethel. They journeyed from Bethel, and there was still some way to come to Ephrat. And Rachel gave birth, and her labor was difficult. When she had such difficulty giving birth, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for this one too is a son for you. And as her soul departed after that, she, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni, and his father named him Ben-Yamin. Now Ben-Oni meant son of my sorrow, and his father named him Ben-Yamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrat, which is Bethlehem. Yaakov placed a monument upon her grave, and this is the tombstone of Rachel to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent at some distance from the herd tower. And it came to pass, when Israel dwelt in this land, that Reuven went and placed his couch beside Bilhah, his father's concubine, so that Israel heard of it. And so the sons of Yaakov were twelve in number. Now, let's go back. This is a difficult passage here. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent at some distance from the herd tower. So, here we get the idea that he pitched his tent away from the rest of the the family. He was grieving for Rachel. And so, he pitched his tent away from the rest of the family. There's an idea that he, after he had, um, he had his main residence with Rachel, and then he decided that you know his main residence was going to be with Bilhah, and Ruvang was upset by this because he, you know, he was a champion of his mother. I mean, with the with the mandrakes, he was bringing flowers to his mother. We see that that he has a tenderness and a heart for his mother. And here again, he's you. On the surface, you might get the mistaken opinion, the mistaken idea, that there was some imp- uh, sexual impropriety between Rachel and Bilhah, which absolutely not, because Ruvain could not have remained one of the tribes if this had happened. So that is not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is that he interfered with Yaakov's personal life decisions that were not really his place to make and he moved Bilhah's couch he moved it I mean he moved his father's couch away from Bilhah 
so that he he would dwell with his own mother. And this was considered almost as bad as having committed adultery with Bilhah. was considered almost that bad. He did not do that. It was like... Um, in a way it was connected it, it was hinting at that t- type of thing because he was interfering in his father's personal life which was not his place to do and so we should not make the mistake of accusing Ruvain of this and later on when Yaakov is on his deathbed he makes that statement about what Ruvain did and we can misunderstand it we can misunderstand what's being talked about. And that is absolutely not what happened. And Ruvain was wanting his father to live with his mother. And we're told here that then that was it. That was the end of the families, um, the wives giving birth. When we're told that, the sons of Yaakov were 12 in number. It was 12 in number, and then that was the finish. That was it. The sons of Leah, Ruvain, Yaakov's firstborn, and Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Yosef, and Binyamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, Dan, Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, God and Asher. These were the sons of Yaakov that had been born to him in Padan Aram. And Yaakov came to his father Yitzhak to Mamre Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Yitzhak had sojourned. The days of Yitzhak were 180 years, and Yitzhak expired and died. I was give, gathered to his people old and sated with days and Asaph and Yaakov his sons buried him now where do we see this uh, before we see Yitzhak and Ishmael burying Abraham so there is like this even though we can't say that Asaph and Yaakov ever came to a true peace with each other there were those moments where there was where they laid down the swords where they were brothers and this is one of those cases where they came together to bury Yitzhak. And it's interesting that it's the same chapter in which we read about the death of Rivka's nurse in the 8th verse that Devorah, Rivka's nurse, died. And we understand from here that this is where Rivka died, where she passed away. And then at the end of the chapter, Yitzhak passes on. And it's also very interesting how when we read High Sarah that in the beginning of High Sarah we read about Sarah's passing away and at the end of the Parsha we read about Abraham passing away. And we know that it isn't exactly in that chronological order because Abraham is actually still uh, living until um, Esau and Yaakov are 15 years old. And so it wasn't before um, Yitzhak was married and, and I mean until it was not before uh, Yaakov and Esau were born which when we look at the Torah the way it's laid out it looks like maybe that's the way it happened but it's not the Torah is not laid out in a chronological order but 
the things that are connected with each other so that we can have our attention drawn to them are put in a certain order. And that's the reason that we read about the death of, of uh, Abraham and in the same Parsha as we read about um, Sarah because they're, they're both of them buried together in Machpelah. And it's interesting to see this in the same chapter that you see first an allusion to the passing of Rivka and then you read about the death of Yitzhak at the end of that chapter. Now the last chapter of this Parsha talks about the um, the lineage of Esau. And there are a lot of mystical things that we um, that we glean from reading about the lineage of Esau and I'm not going to go into any of those but you should just know that there are and it has to do with um, breaking of the vessels of evil coming into the world how it came into the world is connected with reading about the lineage of Esau but there is something here that I do want us to um, I do want us to pay attention to um Esau was married to several wives. Well, I'm just going to read it and then I'll stop where I want to, uh, to talk about it. These are the descendants of Esau. That is a dome. Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholiah. Hmm. That was a very difficult word to say and I'm having trouble saying it. Uh, daughter of Anna, daughter of Sibion, the Hivite, and also Basma, the daughter of Yishmael, sister of Nebaot. Ada bore Asaph Eliphaz, and Basma bore Ruel. And then you had uh, Yeush, Yaalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Asaph, who was born to him in the land of Canaan. Asaph took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the people of his house, his property, and all his cattle and all his possessions that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went into another land away from his brother, for their wealth was too great for them to dwell together, and the land of their sojourning could not support them because of their herds. Now it's very interesting that we begin the the Parsha reading about the struggle between Yaakov and Esau's angel so that we see here that this battle never had to be fought in the physical realm because it was already fought spiritually that the angel had to admit that Yaakov was the rightful owner of this land that belonged to the covenant that Yaakov was the rightful owner of the birthright and that he had legitimately received the blessing. So this was this was part of the struggle to lay this to rest. That Esau had to lay this to rest. First, his angel had to submit. His angel had to give in and admit that the blessing was Yaakov's. And so then we see Esau just pick up and leave, and he settled settled in the mountain land of fear. Asaph, that is a dome. 
So he, he willingly gets up and leaves the land of Canaan and he gives over to Yaakov. This is after he's been living here like a sovereign for all these years that Yaakov's been gone. Then suddenly he willingly gets up and he moves to another place and lets Yaakov have it without a fight, without a struggle. It's just amazing. I mean, first we're seeing him coming with his 400 men and he's ready to do battle. And then at the end of the Parsha, he just gets up and says, it's not big enough for both of us. I'm leaving. That is miraculous. It's really miraculous. And we realize from, from seeing this that yes, we do these struggles and, and it can be struggles in prayer. Spiritual struggles but they make a difference and they make the difference in the physical world where the battle did not have to happen in this plane and this is an this is an example of that right here now these are the descendants of Asav progenitor of Edom upon the mountain land of Seir these are the names of the sons of Asav Eliphaz, son of Ada, the wife of Asaph. Ruel, son of Basimah, wife of Asaph. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gaatam, and Kenaz. Now, if when we will read in the um, Sefer HaYashar, later you're going to see some of these names come up. And it's interesting because Zepho, the, the son of Eliphaz, is the one who was named in Sefer HaYashar as the founder of, and, and just kind of forget the fables you've heard, but the founder of Rome. And this is where we get that Edom and Rome are synonymous, that they are the same. That Zepho actually, and it's a long story, but Zepho is captured by Yosef in the struggle over Machpelah, and then he escapes and he goes to Italy and he founds the kingdom of Rome and this is where the connection of Rome and Edom are, are, um, are in the Torah is Zepho, the grandson of Asaph. Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Asaph's son and she bore to Eliphaz Amalek these are the sons of Ada, the wife of Asaph. Now, Amalek, there is a whole story there about Amalek. That the wife, uh, she wasn't even the wife, she was the concubine. And the Midrash says that she had wanted to become a member of the family of Yitzhak. She didn't want to be um, married to Asaph. She really did not choose that as being her first choice. But there was something lacking in her. And so she had been turned away. So she ended up marrying Asaph. She had this anger in her, this bitterness. And it was passed on to Amalek. And Amalek became like the, I mean, as bad as Edom hated Israel, Amalek was even more so, the most. And um, from Amalek, we we got um, Haman. I mean, every time we see 
a people that is venomously and, and irrationally hateful toward Israel, we say it is the spirit of Amalek. That there was so much hatred toward Israel that they would do things that were, were irrational. Other nations would not do them. They would attack Israel in such a way that other nations would say, forget it, we're not taking that kind of chance. But Amalek's hatred was so strong that they were willing to do it. And this hatred came from the mother. The mother was this Timnah, who was the concubine of Asaph, of Eliphaz, sorry. And these are the sons of Ruel. Nahat, Zerah, Shama, and Miza. These were the sons of Basimat, the wife of Asaph. And these are the sons of Ohal, Lima, Bama. I'm sorry, I'm not saying that very well. The daughter of Anna, daughter of Zebion, the wife of Asaph. She bore to Asaph, Yeush, Yaalam, and Korah. These became the chieftains of the sons of Asaph. And we notice that whenever uh, we read about the sons of, of Ishmael, that there were 12 kings, they were 12 tribes born to Ishmael. And then we read about these sons of Asaph, and we're going to see that there are 10 kings that came from Asaph. So from the family of Abraham are, are truly born nations. Nations and tribes that each one of these sons that is born becomes a whole people a chieftain of a whole people. And these are the chieftains of the sons of Asaph. The sons of Eliphaz, firstborn of Asaph, chief Timon, Taman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Gaamat, chief Amalek. These are the chieftains of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Asaph's sons. Chief Nahat, Chief Zerah, Chief Shama, Chief Mizra, These are the chieftains of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimat, the wife of Asaph. These are the sons of Aholimbama, the wife of Asaph. Chief Yeush, Chief Yaalam, Chief Korah. These are the chieftains of Aholibama, the sons, of the daughter of Anna, wife of Asaph. These are the sons of Asaph, and these are their chieftains, that is, Edom. And these are the sons of Seir, the Horites, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shoval, Zibion and Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chieftains of the Horites, son of Seir, in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan are Hori and Hamam. Lotan's sister was Timna. So here we have Timna again. She is the mother of, of Amalek. These are the sons of Shoval, Alvan, Manahat and Abel, Shepho and Onam. These are the sons of Sibion, Aya and Anna. 
This is the same Anna who found the Yamim in the wilderness when he fed the donkeys of his father, Zibion. Now, what is this talking about? This is talking about the first time that there were mules, that he was the one who figured out how to crossbreed donkeys and horses and make me and have mules. And the reason that this is brought into this whole lineage of Asaph is to make a point that there were illicit um, relationships here with the family of Asaph. And we're kind of glazing over that, that there were illicit relationships. And it's, it's alluded to in this, uh, the Yamim, the, the mules that were made in the wilderness. These are the sons of Anna, Dishon and Aholibama too was the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hamdan, Eshban, Yitran, and Karan. These are the sons of Azar, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Shidon, uh, Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These are the chieftains of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shoval, Chief Sibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezar, Chief Dishan. These are the chieftains of the Horites, according to their chieftains in the land of Seir. And these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. And here is another example of how Adom or Esau walked ahead. Esau always preceded what Israel did. And this is another example of this. The name of the city was Dinhaba. Bela died and Yovav, son of Zerah, and Basra reigned in his stead. Yovav died, and Husham of the land of Taman reigned in his stead. Husham died, and Hadad, son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the fields of Moab, reigned in his stead. The name of his city was Avit. Hadad died, and Samla of Misreka reigned in his stead. Samla died and Shaul of Rahabot by the river reigned in his stead. Shaul died and Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, reigned in his stead. Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, died and Hadar reigned in his stead. The name of his city was Pau. The name of his wife was Mahatabel, the daughter of Matred the daughter of Me-Zahav. These are the names of the chieftains of Asaph according to their families, according to their places with their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Yiktat, Chief Ohalibama, Chief Ela, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Taman, Chief Mitzar, Chief Migdiel, 
chief Eram. These are the chieftains of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. That is Asaph, progenitor of Edom. Now this is the end of the Parsha and I know that sometimes when we go over these um, chapters where we will read these long lineages that a lot of times we'll have a question in our mind about what is important about this. Why should we read this? And sometimes we're tempted to just blaze over it or to skip it altogether. And we should never do that because there's a reason why every word is put into the Torah. Every single word has significance. And I'm not going to go into any of this because I really can't explain a lot of this myself. But believe me, this will be a foundation for you for deeper learning. That even this chapter that is a diff, you know, difficult to read it because the names are hard to say and you think, oh my goodness, you know, it's a little bit dull to just read and this one and that one and that one. But there is significance to every single word of the Torah. <clears throat> so does anyone have any questions about the Parsha tonight? There were some difficult um, concepts. There were some difficult ideas and stories that we read about. That kind of difficult to grasp and difficult to even read them. So maybe think about that. And maybe even next week you might have a question about some of these things. And I, I really encourage you, if you have not read the Parsha, this Parsha, to please read it on your own because it's really important to try to um, get into it and to see for yourself what Hashem might show you as you read these um, as you read these things I see you might have a comment Alan is reading, or Alan and Eileen are writing something for us. And while you're writing, I wanted to just um, make a comment about what I said last week about the um, the class is going to go to an hour, but that's not going to be right away. It's not going to be until probably. Uh, February at the earliest and so we're going to have plenty of time to get through all of the Parsha in uh, Genesis and uh, and a ways into Exodus before that happens <clears throat> so from what I get from this is that is the very beginning of the rift between the tribes of Israel 
or the children of Abraham Um, well there was the struggle between Yaakov and Esau from before they were even born and that was and then it continued on with this um, it never was it has always been there it exists today the struggle between Israel and Edom exists and this is the whole what we're living through it's the whole crux of the struggle in the world right now is this between Yaakov and or Israel rather and Edom and it's a it's a lot I mean once we can really get our minds around that and to realize what it is we're looking at it explains history it explains current events that there's this fueling of it and if you notice you have this uh, with Israel and Rome you have this going on but you also have the thing with um, with Israel and to the east with uh, with Ishmael and so you have all of these struggles going on that we see ex- that explains what we see in the news today and a dome essentially when we look at uh, history a dome essentially represents western civilization it is Rome yes but then it went from there as to represent western civilization as it were now I do want to introduce Alan Cecil he's in our class tonight and I'm really uh, very happy to see you and um, he is going to be teaching a class in the future here we haven't exactly decided when he's going to start and his class is going to be talking about some of the history of the um, of the found of the church and the rift between the between Israel and Rome as it were in fact I'm going to uh, at this point give the microphone over to Alan if you would like and you can kind of introduce that would you like to do that hello can everybody hear me got the uh, it's the first time I've been in the chat room okay great I'm not too loud well one of the uh, it's very interesting what she was talking about with Asov because Asov as everyone knows as she was saying became the kingdom of Rome and from the kingdom of Rome of course that is where the Catholic Church became the foundation of Christianity which is also the foundation of Western Europe uh, came from Asov and it's interesting talking about the turmoil going on in the world the uh, Ishmael of course was the ancestor of the Arabs who founded Islam and of course from Asov came Christianity so you have the the two major religions that are in conflict with Judaism and the B'nai Noah came from the same family, the, the children of Avraham. And uh, that is what I was, uh, one of the things I want to go into when I do the class, talking about how this whole epic struggle between this, you know, the family has, has really shaped 
our world that we live in. And you look back at, at the uh, significance of this Parsha and looking at how Europe has, of course, you know, the Americans, most of the Americans came from Europe. We brought a lot of the uh, Roman uh, Empire, you know, our, our for centuries we have been into Roman and Greek learning. Um, you look at our culture now. We, we have Latin, which is the language of the church, language of Rome, has come down from us. We use Latin in science, in medicine. We even have it on the back of our money. If you look at the back of a penny or the back of a dollar bill, you will see Latin, the language of Rome, the language of Aesop on there. And uh, there's a lot of characteristics, a lot of things in our culture that are based on this. And a lot of people are one. Uh, a lot of people who come into the Noahide movement wonder how, why haven't we heard about this? You know, why haven't the Noahide laws been taught? And it's what Miriam was saying earlier about Esau and Jacob, the struggle that began in the womb. Rashi said that when one rises, the other falls. Israel can, it doesn't matter if Ishmael, if the Arabs become powerful, Israel can be powerful too. They don't really have a problem with that. But it's different with Esau and Israel. Only one of those nations can be powerful at one time. If, when Israel was powerful, when, when David and Solomon ruled Israel, Esau was at his low point. The, he, he, nothing going on with him. But when Rome destroyed the temple, that is when the era of the Roman Empire and the, the uh, I don't know if you've gone into, you know, the, if you're familiar with the four beasts of Daniel, the last one talking about the Roman uh, era, that is the era we still live in. For 2,000 years, we have been living in that era of the fourth beast of Rome, of Christianity. And that is one of the struggles that we have to deal with, is that we are, we are, in, we are involved, as Noahides, we are involved in this epic struggle of, with Israel against Esau. Esau being, of course... Like, I, like she was saying, you know, Western civilization. And that includes America, South America, Australia. I mean, it's a big, big chunk of the world. And uh, that is just one of, the, one of the things I was wanting to go into later in the class. Miriam, go ahead. Well, thank you, Ellen, for um, telling us a little bit about that class. It just went so well with the Parsha. And so I really thank you for um, adding that to it. So, does anybody else have a comment tonight or a question? Okay, I think that we're going to go ahead and end the class then. And I really thank you for joining us, for everybody being here. And I look forward to seeing you again next week.